0: this is section 1 of some rambling notes of an idle excursion by mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org some rambling notes of an idle excursion by mark twain read by john greenman chapter 1 all the journeyings i had ever done had been purely in the way of business The pleasant May weather suggested a novelty, namely a trip for pure recreation, the bread-and-butter element left out. The Reverend said he would go, too—a good man, one of the best of men, although a clergyman. By eleven at night we were in New Haven and on board the New York boat. We bought our tickets and then went wandering round here and there in the solid comfort of being free and idle and of putting distance between ourselves and the mails and telegraphs after a while i went to my stateroom and undressed but the night was too enticing for bed we were moving down the bay now and it was pleasant to stand at the window and take the cool night breeze and watch the gliding lights on shore presently two elderly men sat down under that window and began a conversation their talk was properly no business of mine Yet I was feeling friendly toward the world, and willing to be entertained. I soon gathered that they were brothers, that they were from a small Connecticut village, and that the matter in hand concerned the cemetery. Said one, Now, John, we talked it all over amongst ourselves, and this is what we've done. You see, everybody was a-moving from the old burying-ground, and our folks was most about left to themselves, as you may say they was crowded, too, as you know. Lot wa'n't big enough in the first place, and last year, when Seth's wife died, we couldn't hardly tuck her in. She sort of overlaid Deacon Shorb's lot, and he soured on her, so to speak, and on the rest of us, too. So we talked it over, and I was for a layout in the new symmetry on the hill. They wa'n't unwilling, if it was cheap, well, the two best and biggest plots was number eight and number nine, both of a size. Nice comfortable room for twenty-six, twenty-six full-growns, that is. But you reckon in children and other shorts and strike an average, and I should say you might lay in thirty or maybe thirty-two or three. Pretty genteel. No crowding to signify. That's a plenty, william. Which one did you buy? Well, I'm a-coming to that, John you see number eight was thirteen dollars and number nine fourteen i see so'st you took number eight you wait i took number nine and i'll tell you for why in the first place deacon shorb wanted it well after the way he'd gone on about seth's wife overlappin his premises i'd a beat him out of that number nine if i'd a had to stand two dollars extra let alone one that's the way i felt about it says i what's a dollar anyway life's only a pilgrimage says i we ain't here for good and we can't take it with us says i so i just dumped it down knowing the lord don't suffer a good deed to go for nothing and callilatin to take it out of somebody in the course of trade then there was another reason john number nine's a long way to the handiest lot in the symmetry and the likeliest for situation it lays right on top of a knoll in the dead center of the bearing ground and you can see millport from there and tracy's and hopper mount and a raft of farms and so on there ain't no better outlook from a burying plot in the state si higgins says so and i reckon he ought to know well and that ain't all course shorb had to take number eight want no help for it now number eight jines on to number nine but it's on the slope of the hill and every time it rains it'll soak right down onto the shorbs si higgins says twan the deacon's time comes he better take out fire and marine insurance both on his remains here there was the sound of a low placid duplicate chuckle of appreciation and satisfaction now john here's a little rough draft of the ground that i've made on a piece of paper up here in the left-hand corner we've bunched the departed took them from the old graveyard and stowed them one alongside o t'other on a first-come first-served plan no partialities with grand'ther jones for a starter only because it happened so and winding up indiscriminate with seth's twins a little crowded toward the end of the layout maybe but we reckon twa'n't best to scatter the twins well next comes the living here where it's marked a we're going to put marrier and her family when they are called b that's for brother hosea and his'n c calvin and tribe What's left is these two lots here—just uh, the gem of the whole patch for general style and outlook. They're for me and my folks, and you and your'n. Which of them would you rather be buried in?" "'I swan. You've took me mighty unexpected, William. It sort of started with shivers. Fact is, I was thinking so busy about making things comfortable for the others I hadn't thought about being buried myself.' "'Life's only a fleeting show, John. As the saying is, we've all got to go sooner or later. To go with a clean record's the main thing. Fact is, it's the only thing worth striving for, John. Yes, that's so, William. Uh, that's so. There ain't no getting around it. Uh, which of these lots would you recommend? Well, it depends, John. Are you particular about outlook? I don't say I am, William. I don't say I ain't. Really, I don't know, but mainly, I reckon, uh, I'd set store by a south-exposure. That's easy fix, John. They're both south-exposure. They take the sun, and the shorbs get the shade. How about sile, William? D's a sandy sile. E's mostly loam. You may give me E, then, William. Uh, A sandy sile caves in, more or less, and costs for repairs. All right. Set your name down here, John, under E now if you don't mind paying me your share of the fourteen dollars john while we're on the business everything's fixed after some higgling and sharp bargaining the money was paid and john bade his brother good-night and took his leave there was silence for some moments then a soft chuckle welled up from the lonely william and he muttered i declare for it, if i haven't made a mistake it's d that's mostly lone not e and John's booked for a sandy sile after all." There was another soft chuckle, and William departed to his rest also. The next day in New York was a hot one. Still, we managed to get more or less entertainment out of it. Toward the middle of the afternoon, we arrived on board the stanch steamship Bermuda, with bag and baggage, and hunted for a shady place—it was blazing summer weather—until we were halfway down the harbor. Then I buttoned my coat closely half an hour later I put on a spring overcoat and buttoned that. As we passed the lightship, I added an ulster and tied a handkerchief around the collar to hold it snug to my neck. So rapidly had the summer gone and winter come again. By nightfall we were far out at sea, with no land in sight. No telegrams could come here, no letters, no news. This was an uplifting thought it was still more uplifting to reflect that the millions of harassed people on shore behind us were suffering just as usual the next day brought us into the midst of the atlantic solitudes out of smoke-colored sounding into fathomless deep blue no ships visible anywhere over the wide ocean no company but mother carrie's chickens wheeling darting skimming the waves in the sun there were some seafaring men among the passengers and conversation drifted into matters concerning ships and sailors one said that true as the needle to the pole was a bad figure since the needle seldom pointed to the pole he said a ship's compass was not faithful to any particular point but was the most fickle and treacherous of the servants of man it was forever changing it changed every day in the year Consequently, the amount of the daily variation had to be ciphered out and allowance made for it, else the mariner would go utterly astray. Another said, There was a vast fortune waiting for the genius who should invent a compass that would not be affected by the local influences of an iron ship. He said there was only one creature more fickle than a wooden ship's compass, and that was the compass of an iron ship then came reference to the well-known fact that an experienced mariner can look at the compass of a new iron vessel thousands of miles from her birthplace and tell which way her head was pointing when she was in process of building now an ancient whale-ship master fell to talking about the sort of crews they used to have in his early days said he sometimes we'd have a batch of college students queer lot ignorant." why they didn't know the catheads from the main brace but if you took them for fools you'd get bit sure they'd learn more in a month than another man would in a year we had one once in the mary that came aboard with gold spectacles on and besides he was rigged out from main truck to keelson in the nobbiest clothes that ever saw a forecastle he had a chestful too cloaks and broadcloth coats and velvet vests everything's swell, you know. And didn't the salt water fix them out for him? I guess not. Well, going to see, the mate told him to go aloft and help shake out the fort gallantsel. Up he shins to the foretop, with his spectacles on, and in a minute down he comes again looking insulted. Says the mate, what'd you come down for? Says the chap, perhaps you didn't notice that there ain't any ladders above there. You see, we hadn't any shrouds above the foretop the men burst it out and laughed such as i guess you never heard the like of next night which was dark and rainy the mate ordered this chap to go aloft about something and i'm dumbed if he didn't start up with an umbrella and a lantern but no matter he made a mighty good sailor before the voyage was done and we had to hunt up something else to laugh at years afterwards when i had forgot all about him i comes into boston mate of a ship and was loafing around town with a second mate and it so happened that we stepped into the revere house thinking maybe we would chance the salt horse in that big dining-room for a flyer as the boys say some fellows were talking just at our elbows and one says yonder's the new governor of massachusetts at that table over there with the ladies we took a good look my mate and i for we hadn't either of us ever seen a governor before i looked and looked at that face and then all of a sudden it popped on me, but I didn't give any sign. Says I, Mate, I've a notion to go over and shake hands with him. Says he, I think I see you doing it, Tom. Says I, Mate, I'm a-going to do it. Says he, Oh, yes, I guess so. Maybe you don't want to bet you will, Tom. Says I, I don't mind going a five on it, mate. Says he, Put it up up she goes says i planking the cash this surprised him but he covered it and says pretty sarcastic hadn't you better take your grub with the governor and the ladies tom says i upon second thoughts i will says he well tom you are a dumb fool says i maybe i am maybe i ain't but the main question is do you want to risk two and a half that i won't do it make it a five says he done says I. I started, him a-giggling, and slapping his hand on his thigh, he felt so good. I went over there, and leaned my knuckles on the table a minute, and looked the governor in the face, and says I, Mr. Gardner, don't you know me? He stared, and I stared, and he stared. Then all of a sudden he sings out Tom Bowling by the Holy Poker. Ladies, it's old Tom Bowling that you've heard me talk about, shipmate of mine in the Marianne he rose up and shook hands with me ever so hearty. i sort of glanced around and took a realizing sense of my mate's saucer eyes and then says the governor plant yourself tom plant yourself you can't count your anchor again till you've had a feed with me and the ladies i planted myself alongside the governor and canted my eye around toward my mate well sir his dead lights were bugged out like tompions and his mouth stood that wide open that. You could have laid a ham in it without him noticing it." There was great applause at the conclusion of the old captain's story. Then after a moment's silence a grave, pale, young man said, "'Had you ever met the governor before?' The old captain looked steadily at this inquirer a while, and then got up and walked aft without making any reply. One passenger after another stole a furtive glance at the inquirer, but failed to make him out and so gave him up it took some little work to get the talk machinery to running smoothly again after this derangement but at length the conversation sprang up about that important and jealously guarded instrument a ship's timekeeper, its exceeding delicate accuracy and the wreck and destruction that have sometimes resulted from its varying a few seemingly trifling moments from the true time then in due course my comrade the reverend got off on a yarn with a fair wind and everything drawing. It was a true story, too, about Captain Rounceville's shipwreck, true in every detail. It was to this effect. Captain Rounceville's vessel was lost in mid-Atlantic, and likewise his wife and his two little children. Captain Rounceville and seven seamen escaped with life, but with little else. A small, rudely constructed raft was to be their home for eight days. They had neither provisions nor water they had scarcely any clothing. No one had a coat but the captain. This coat was changing hands all the time, for the weather was very cold. Whenever a man became exhausted with the cold, they put the coat on him and laid him down between two shipmates until the garment and their bodies had warmed life into him again. Among the sailors was a Portuguese who knew no English. He seemed to have no thought of his own calamity, but was concerned only about the captain's bitter loss of— wife, and children. By day he would look his dumb compassion into the captain's face, and by night, in the darkness and the driving spray and rain, he would seek out the captain and try to comfort him with caressing pats on the shoulder. One day, when hunger and thirst were making their sure inroads upon the men's strength and spirits, a floating barrel was seen at a distance. It seemed a great find, for doubtless it contained food of some sort. A brave fellow swam to it, and after long and exhausting effort got it to the raft. It was eagerly opened—it was a barrel of magnesia. On the fifth day an onion was spied. A sailor swam off and got it. Although perishing with hunger, he brought it in its integrity and put it into the captain's hand. The history of the sea teaches that among starving, shipwrecked men selfishness is rare, and a wonder-compelling magnanimity the rule the onion was equally divided into eight parts and eaten with deep thanksgivings on the eighth day a distant ship was sighted attempts were made to hoist an oar with captain rounceville's coat on it for a signal there were many failures for the men were but skeletons now and strengthless at last success was achieved but the signal brought no help the ship faded out of sight and left despair behind her by and by another ship appeared and passed so near that the castaways, every eye eloquent with gratitude, made ready to welcome the boat that would be sent to save them. But this ship also drove on, and left these men staring their unutterable surprise and dismay into each other's ashen faces. Late in the day still another ship came up out of the distance, but the men noted with a pang that her course was one which would not bring her nearer. Their remnant of life was nearly spent, Their lips and tongues were swollen, parched, cracked with eight days' thirst. Their bodies starved, and here was their last chance gliding relentlessly from them. They would not be alive when the next sun rose. For a day or two past, the men had lost their voices, but now Captain Rounceville whispered, Let us pray. The Portuguese patted him on the shoulder in sign of deep approval all knelt at the base of the oar that was waving the signal-coat aloft, and bowed their heads. The sea was tossing. The sun rested, a red, rayless disc, on the sea-line in the west. When the men presently raised their heads they would have roared a hallelujah if they had had a voice. The ship's sails lay wrinkled and flapping against her masts. She was going about. Here was rescue at last and in the very last instant of time that was left for it no not rescue yet only the imminent prospect of it the red disk sank under the sea and darkness blotted out the ship by and by came a pleasant sound oars moving in a boat's rowlocks nearer it came and nearer within thirty steps but nothing visible then a deep voice the castaways could not answer their swollen tongues refused voice the boat skirted round and round the raft started away the agony of it returned rested the oars close at hand listening no doubt the deep voice again hollo where are ye shipmates captain rounceville whispered to his men saying whisper your best boys now all at once So they sent out an eightfold whisper in hoarse concert. There was life in it, if it succeeded, death, if it failed. After that supreme moment, Captain Rounceville was conscious of nothing until he came to himself on board the saving ship. Said the reverend, concluding, There was one little moment of time in which that raft could be visible from that ship, and only one— If that one little fleeting moment had passed unfruitful, those men's doom was sealed. As close as that does God shave events aforeordained from the beginning of the world. When the sun reached the water's edge that day, the captain of that ship was sitting on deck reading his prayer book. The book fell. He stooped to pick it up, and happened to glance at the sun. In that instant, that far-off raft appeared for a second against the red disk its needle-like oar and diminutive signal cut sharp and black against the bright surface and in the next instant was thrust away into the dusk again but that ship that captain and that pregnant instant had had their work appointed for them in the dawn of time and could not fail of the performance the chronometer of God never errs. There was a deep, thoughtful silence for some moments. Then the grave, pale young man said, What is the chronometer of God? End of chapter 1